Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's turn in Genesis chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Um, and I don't want to be morbid, but I want you to think about something. If today was your funeral day, okay? I'm not trying to be morbid, but if today you were, your casket was right up here in the front and your body was in it. Now, I'm saying this because we all were born and we're all going to die unless Christ comes back. Those are two important dates when we were born, but the greater time uh, important date is when we die because we're going to leave this earth unless Christ comes back before then and takes his, his church with him. But if this morning you were in your casket and things were being said about you, your, uh, or, or the or, obituary, that's what it's called, right? Obituary? That's interesting. But if that was read about you, what would you want it to say about you? And it'd be true. And it'd be true. Um, when I was younger, the, the things that I would have wanted to say, you know, that he was a great athlete or he's a funny guy, you know, as I've gotten older, some of the things I've wanted to say is that he was a faithful husband, he was a good dad, he was a good friend, uh, a good disciple. But, you know, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if, if I was laying in that casket this morning, and I believe this would be the heart cry of many of you this morning, the one thing that I would want to be said about me and it to be true was that he knew the Lord, and he loved the Lord. That there would not be any question in your mind who I am and who I loved. Because, and the reason I say that is because I don't know how many funerals I've been to or how many people I've talked to who have lost loved ones, and I've, and I've asked the question, hey, well, did that person love the Lord? Was that person a disciple of Jesus? And the answer sometimes comes back, um... I hope so. I think they made a profession of faith, but, you know, I'm not really sure. And the reason that is, is because, why? It's because the fruit of their life did not uh, reflect what their profession of faith was. The way they lived didn't look what they were professing. And I know that there's no one in this room who is a disciple of Jesus that wants that to be a question of them or you when you are in your casket or if you're, you know, whatever you do with your body when it's over. But you know what? The, the, the thing about this message is, is that if we will apply what we learn in this message this morning, it will not have to be said that of you on the day that you do pass. And I've got a graphic that I want to <clears throat> put up this morning that displays something. In the world, you're in three places. You're either on the left, a believer, in Christ. That believer could be, you know, words that could be there as a disciple of Jesus. You could be, uh, it could also be a Christian, a Christ follower. And then the far side in the black is non-believer. That's anyone that says, no, I don't believe in Jesus. They clearly say, I don't believe in Jesus. Now that section in the middle is that section in the, in, is where the person that's laying in the casket, you're going, I'm not exactly sure. In that middle, there's, there's people that are actual believers, there's people that are in there that are deceivers, and there's people in there 
that are deceived. Because everyone in that middle question mark section would say that they are okay with God. They would say, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. But there's a question on whether or not they are. And some of you this morning, let me ask you this. Where, where would you be at in this graphic if in truth? Is it very clear, is it, as it were said, black and white? Now, some of you might go, well, I hope that I'm at least in the middle there with a question mark. Uh, I wouldn't want to be on the black side of this graphic because that, I don't want to be on this side. But it might surprise you that Jesus says something different to that. He says, I would rather, he says in, in Revelation, he's talking to his church. And he says, you know what, I would rather... He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Look what he says. I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit, you know, that's, if someone spits on you, that's not a good thing, right? But if you look at the, the original Greek in that, it means to vomit. In other words, it makes me sick that you're kind of halfway. Jesus wants us either hot or cold. And this morning as we go in our passage, that's what our passage is going to deal with. And I have three gospel truths that if you're taking notes, you might want to write down. And the first one is this, that the Lord distinguishes, distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. If you remember last week when, when Terry was preaching in chapter 18, we, we found out that Abraham is the friend of God, and God reveals to him, he says, you know what, I'm going down into Sodom and Gomorrah to see what the spiritual condition is there. And in that, during that time, Abraham intercedes for those cities because he knows that his nephew Lot is down there, and he gets God all the way down to 10 people. He says, look, God, if you can find 10 righteous people in this city, will you spare them? And he said, yes, if I find 10 righteous people, I will do that. And so that's where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. Before we do that, I want to also say there were three men or beings standing before Abraham uh, one was the Lord, and then were two were angels, and that's where we're going to pick up in our passage. So it says that two angels came <clears throat> to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, if you remember, there was a time earlier in Genesis where uh, Abraham and Lot were sojourning together. But because of the blessings that they both had, the, the land could not sustain them. And so they were, they were having conflict with one another. And so Abraham said, hey, listen. Let's look out here, and you choose which way you want to go. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And so Lot agrees, and he goes, and it says that he, when he lifted up his eyes, and when he lifted up his eyes, he saw the, the most choice and lush land that was filled with water. 
that, that he could prosper in. And instead of letting his uncle, Abraham, have it, he goes, okay, I'll take this over here. So he goes there, and it says that he went as far as Sodom, the city of Sodom, and he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent there, right up against the wicked city of Sodom. That's where we left him a while back, but today he's in a different place. Today he's no longer in his tent. Today he's no longer sitting outside the city. Actually, he's moved into the city, and he's in a house. He has prospered in Sodom. Not only that, but it says that he was sitting at the gate. Now, what does that mean to be sitting at the gate? It means that he had a civic authority. He was a civic leader within the community. Somehow, Lot had gone into Sodom, and he had gained influence with the people, and he has a voice among the council. And, uh, but although Lot is living within Sodom, we need to understand that he's not one of them. He's living in Sodom, but he is not one of them. He, we're going to see that he's double-minded in, in a little bit here. We're going to see that he compromises. But Scripture is clear that, that Lot was a righteous man because in 2 Peter 2, it says that God, this is Peter, writing, the Apostle Peter writing to, his, uh, to the people. He says, God rescued righteous, see that, righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's a mark of someone that's righteous, is that as you live in the world and as you begin to see sin and rebellion in yourself and in those around you and in the society around you, there's a grieving that goes on within you. There is a torment that goes on with you. It's not a, a spirit that celebrates sin or excuses it, but there's a, a grieving it's not a self-righteousness. It's just a, this, I, I don't want it to be like this. I long, a righteous person says, I long for the day when Christ will return. Like we sang this morning several times. When Christ comes back and I will sin no more and there will not be sin around us. That's the, that's the mark. That's the fruit of righteousness. And Lot shows some of this in this passage. Notice how he bows down before the angels. Just like Abraham bowed down in chapter 18 before the Lord. And here's another mark of righteousness. When they wanted to spend the night out in, in the square, he knew the danger of his city. He knew what would, would happen to them. So he decides, I'm going to protect them. And he brings them into his home. And not only that, he takes his goods, what he had, and he fed and gave drink to the angels. That, that's the mark. Those are... Everyone that does that doesn't necessarily mean you're righteous, but it is a fruit of righteousness. In verse 4 it says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, let's remember why are the angels there. They're going down there to assess the spiritual condition of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says that every last man, young and old, surrounded 
the house. Why does the author say this? I think Moses, when he wrote this, he's, he's wanting us to see that this city is totally unified with one mind and one spirit. He's wanting to show the, what the assessment is of this city. Now, why are they unified? What, what are these guys unified? Why, are they the welcoming party uh, to uh, these angels? Hey, we want to just uh, move you in. No, let's look at verse 5. And they called to Lot, where are, the men, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under, my, uh, come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, speaking of Lot, came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal, with, deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and he drew near, and they and drew near to break the door down. What's going on here? It's it's clear that the men of the city, in one unified unified voice, have gathered together to sexually assault these two angels. Um, and Lot being a double-minded, righteous man, goes out to protect these men. That's the righteousness. But then he does something that's like unthinkable. He says, no, leave these men alone. Here, take my daughters. Okay, this is the double-minded side of him. This is, this is you know, this, this is unimaginable, isn't it? Uh, but before... Before we get too self-righteous about this, um, men, um, when I look at our culture, the American dad, in some ways, the American dad's no different than these guys when it comes to guarding our daughters from sexual predators, right? So that's, a, that's another message for another time. I'm not going to go deep into that. But... We need to understand that, that this city is, is showing itself to be affecting the way that Lot is thinking, and he's double-minded. Another, another thing I want to point out is that as Lot confronts and resists these men, when he does the right thing, what do they do? They turn on him. Now, he's, he's a man of prominence, but they turn on him, and they, they actually say this, you're not one of us. This is what they basically, you're not one of us. Who do you think you are trying to judge us? This is not something new. This is a pattern that we're going to see. If you read the, through the scriptures, this happens all the time through the scriptures. And this will happen to us. This is very instructive to us. That we need to be careful that as we are living amongst unbelievers, we need to understand that we don't, we don't, want to be of the world, but we need to be in the world. We've got to be careful that we don't think that, you know, if I'm just cool enough, if I just dress right, if I just talk the right way, then eventually everyone's going to love me. The truth is the world will never, the system of the world will never, ever, ever truly accept a true disciple of Jesus who is bringing the truth. 
It says in 2 Peter 3, verses 12 and 13, Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being <clears throat> deceived. And so what I want to, the point I'm trying to make here is that the context of this passage is clear that these, these men have come to sexually violate the angels. That is clearly taught, but you know, there's some that would say that, um, that would pervert the truth, some teachers in our day that would pervert the truth and say, you know what, that's not exactly, that's not at all what was happening there. Um, people per- perverting the truth is not, nothing new. 2 Timothy 4 Verses 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now that day is coming, it's actually is here, where people... And listen, I want, to hear, I want you to hear the spirit I'm coming with. Um, when I say people, I'm, I'm in that group, okay? We're all tempted to do what this passage just talked about, itching ears. We all have itching ears. The question is whether you scratch them or not, okay? When you have an itching ear and it's, it's contrary to the word of God, the, the way to get it to stop itching is to put it to death. It's not to scratch it with lies, Okay? But we all have the temptation to have, that we have desires within our, ourselves that are contrary to the word of God. And we, it says that people are going to gather teachers and pastors around them to take the words of God and to twist them and to turn them in such a way that says, you know what, it doesn't really mean what it's clearly stating here. It doesn't really mean that. So you can, you're okay the way you are. Stay where you're at. And we all, listen, we all have to be aware that we have that temptation within ourselves to twist the scriptures in some, maybe it's a li- what we think is little. That's, there's no little twisting of the truth. But we might consider that. So we need to watch ourselves on that. But right here in this passage, there's men like Troy Perry, who was, he once was a pastor uh, who's, who came out of the closet. And uh, he and others call themselves homosexual theologians, homosexual theologians. <clears throat> and they take passages like this, and they say, uh, they, they take the word, the Hebrew word that says yadah. You know that part that says, bring them out here that we may know them? They take that passage, and they say, that word, know them, it, it can mean, they will agree, it can mean to have sexual relations with someone. Kind of like in, in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife, and then she gets pregnant. They say it can mean that, but it was only, that's only 15 times in the, in the Old Testament. And then they'll go on to say, but 900 other times what it means is to know someone intellectually, to know, to, to know them uh, psychologically. And that's what was happening in the passage. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. Where are the men inside? We want to get to know them psychologically. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, we're going to do worse to you because you won't let us know them psychologically. That doesn't make sense if you really look at the context. As we're studying Scripture, context is often 
what will define what a word means. And it's clear here. It's very clear that this is what's going on here. And they will also teach that God was not condemning these cities for practicing homosexuality, but rather that they were punished for the sin of not practicing hospitality. Okay? That is a, I'm telling you that is a widespread teaching uh, in our culture today. And I'm going to say two things about that, that, that number one, it is true that, that in that culture, both then and now, hospitality is way up here. I mean, it's like if someone comes under your roof and you take them under your roof, they are under your care. There was a great honor to, um, to protect whoever was, you were giving hospitality to. That is true. But number two, <clears throat> and, and number two, it's, it's true, they were not being hospitable. Right, That's not showing hospitality, what they were wanting to do to the men. But it is much more. The sin that they, that they are displaying is much more than not showing hospitality. And I want to I take caution here um, as, as we are studying the Scripture because um, it's widely becoming accepted amongst, amongst church, churches, professing churches, that the Scriptures do not teach do not teach that homosexuality is a sin. Um, you have to do great hermeneutical gymnastics around the passage and twist it and, and take it out of context to prove that point. I would say that instead of saying something like that, just take the word of God as it is. If you're not going to accept it, just say, you know what, it does teach that, but I don't believe it. I reject it. The reason I say that is because if, if you do that, at least you're walking in the, in the truth. You're not putting a lie upon a lie. You're walking in the truth. And, and what I want to go to now is, is what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the actual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Scripture teaches us outside of this passage what it was. Let's look at... Um, Ezekiel 16, verses 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now, it's it's not going to get any clearer than this, okay? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. This is where people say, see, this is what happened. They weren't showing hospitality. But what's happening here is Sodom was rich with earthly material things, and they had, a, they had abundant food and resources and the ability to alleviate pain within their community. But instead of sharing it with the poor, they were keeping it, selfishly keeping it to themselves. And verse 50 says, They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Jude 5 and 7 says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual Immorality, sexual immorality is anything 
that is done sexually outside of marriage and pursued, they, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So in other words, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to make an example of what he thinks about sin and rebellion, uh, specifically sexual immorality uh, and, unnatural, and homosexuality. But I, I, I still want to ask, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Was it not showing hospitality? Was it refusing to care for the poor? Was it homosexuality? I would actually say that these are simply the fruits of two bigger roots, sin, sin roots, roots of sin. And that is the sin of pride and unbelief. Okay, Those two passages that I just read, if you remember, they said, Behold, we saw that you had pride and you were haughty. And then it says in uh, Jude, the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. When you are proud and haughty and you do not believe, you will sin and it will produce different types of sin. And listen, you can be a heterosexual this morning, virgin, uh, who knows scripture and comes to church every week and still be guilty of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah because you're proud that you're not like other men and other women. And you don't, your faith isn't in what Christ did. Your faith is in your good works or your morality. And that's important for us to understand that Sodom is not just out there. Sodom is in here. When you look in the mirror, Sodom is looking back at you. There is in all of us Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's only one thing that can conquer, conquer that rebellion within us. And that's true humility, not pride, and faith in Jesus, not unbelief. And it's, under, it's important to understand that over time, persistent pride, persistent pride and unbelief hardens the heart of man. And the acts of sin become greater in what we will do. That's why when we read about, uh, and we're going to read further in this passage, some, another thing that's just even, to me, it's even worse, but that a man could say, you can have my daughters. His heart has gotten hardened over time to something that's very clear that that's wrong. But that's what happens when we're haughty and we walk in unbelief. And so God, after assessing the condition of the city, after distinguishing between the righteous and the unrighteous, he chooses to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities because he cannot find ten people that are righteous within the city. And this brings us to our second gospel truth, and that is that the Lord delivers the righteous from judgment. The Lord delivers the righteous from judgment. Now, this is just like Noah in the days of Noah. Before God destroyed the earth with a flood, he offered salvation through Noah. He extends mercy to anyone who will receive it. That is, isn't that good news? 
anyone who will receive the mercy of God? It says in verse 10 in our passage, it says, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. Speaking of the angels. They brought him into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. What's ironic here is that the one that went out to save the angels is actually now needing to be rescued by the ones he was trying to save. In verse 12, it says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They thought, this guy's kidding. Evidently, the way he lived his life had tainted his ability to communicate clearly the thing that judgment was coming. And that can happen in our own lives. Our own testimonies can be tainted. And it, it makes it difficult for people to hear what we're really saying. We need to be aware of that. Verse 15 says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look what happens in verse 16. But he lingered. But Lot lingered. This is, again, that that, that, um, picture of being double-minded to being lukewarm. Though his heart for the Lord, uh, he had torment with all that was going around him, there was also this part of him that didn't want to give up the comforts and the riches and the pleasures that were found in Sodom. This is something we need to be aware of as believers as we're seeking to follow Christ, that there are temptations in our life to live comfortably in Sodom. We need to be aware of that. And at some point, Lot had to have counted the cost in the midst of what was going on. And he's like, if I'm about to leave everything my hands have worked to provide. I've worked hard for this. I'm about to lose it all. But Jesus warns us in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Lot has lost the value of seeing the value of his soul. But the good news is that God, listen, God loves his children. And God delivers his children. Sometimes kicking and screaming. Look at the next verse. It says, So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful. He's not doing it because Lot deserved it. He's doing it because he's merciful. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, 
One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee. And it's just a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. What is, what's Lot saying there? I just want a little bit of salt. I don't need, just give me just a little bit. He's still dependent upon the city. He still thinks he needs the city to survive. And it's amazing to me. In verse 21, the angel says to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, which means little. So we see that the Lord delivers his people. He delivers the righteous from the judgment. And the third thing that we're going to see here is that the Lord destroys the unrighteous with judgment. Verse 23 says that the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Why did Lot's wife look back? It doesn't tell us in the passage clearly, but I, I have a thought that there's a great chance that she still had this longing in her. I'm about to lose it. I cannot lose everything. And she turns around and wants to return, and judgment's brought upon her. You know, Christian, Christ follower, believer, this can be me. You know, there's times in our life that God blesses us. And he gives us these great blessings to encourage us and to enjoy. And then we move forward a little bit. And God's like, okay, that season's passed. I'm going to take you up into the mountains. And we can turn back and go, no, I want this. I want what you gave me here. I want, it was so good, I don't want to move forward. And blessings of the past can be curses of the present, which keep us from seeing the blessings that are going to come in the future. And we need to be aware of that. Maybe this morning you're here and there's this longing, man, I wish, well, I wish it was like it used to be. Scripture said, don't say that. It's always better in your memory, isn't it? Often than it was when you were actually going through it. Because God brought you through it now. So we've got to be careful. We, we need to look at Lot's wife and realize she is an example of not to look back and to long. It's okay to look back if it's to encourage you to go forward. But don't let looking back take you back. Verse 27 says that Abraham went in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
I wonder what was going through Abraham's mind. I think he's thinking, what happened to Lot? So it was, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. These verses teach us that God is faithful. He heard the, the, the cry of Abraham for Lot. He heard the petitions. He listens to his people. Maybe you're praying for somebody right now. That's not praying for themselves. You're praying for somebody that doesn't even know they need prayer. I encourage you, don't, don't quit. Don't give up. Be that inter- interceder and intercede for them. The last thing I want us to see here is that although the Lord delivers the righteous, the Lord also disciplines the righteous. Verse 30 says, Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. In other words, God gave him what he wanted. And when he got there, he's like, I don't want this. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. I wonder, what would have happened if Lot, when when the angel said, go to the mountains, if he had gone right then? We don't know. We'll never know. But could there have been some type of blessing that's not there now that he's, he's gotten his way. It says, verse 31, And the firstborn, and this is, this is extremely disturbing, the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. For our, from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down, or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. It's important to see that Lot's decision to live in Sodom did not come without consequences. The culture in which he allowed into his life and into his family's life greatly influenced his daughters. Now, on one hand, they, they wanted to honor their father. That was good. But they had adopted the ways of Sodom in order to do it, which was ungodly. And if you study the history of Israel, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites are their enemies. They are always warring with them throughout the history of of the Old Testament. But here's something that's interesting, how God can take our sin and redeem it. There's a lady whose name 
was Ruth. You remember Ruth? Jesus descended from Ruth. You know what she was? A Moabite. So even in this sin, God takes it and redeems it. That's what he can do. He can take, that's what he does, isn't it? Amen? Amen. That's what he does in our lives. And this is a tragic account because it, it tells us that Lot's you know, compromise and, and his lukewarmness and his double-mindedness brought discipline on him by God. Understand this, child of God. If you're hanging out around Sodom, take this as a warning. God loves you. He wants to get you to come out. He wants you, and if you're in Sodom and you're not his child yet, he wants you to come out. But God loves his children, and just like any good mother or father disciplines their children, he's going to discipline you and me if we don't choose to repent on our own accord. And while this passage teaches us that God judges sin, it also teaches us that he desires to deliver all from the Sodoms that we live within. Now, your Sodom might look different than my Sodom. Um, But at the root of it, it's all from pride and unbelief. And what must we do? Listen, this is how we can make sure that when our cat, we're laying in our casket, there isn't a question of, did this guy really or did this girl really love the Lord? Here's the way. And we talked about this in MCs two weeks ago. What is the work that we have to do to please God? John 6, 29 says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, turn from your pride. Confess, God, I have been against you. I have rebelled against you. Confess, humble yourself before the Lord. And then turn to him believing that what he has done for you is to pay for your sins, and he will take and can take anything we have done, and it's called redeem. He can surprise us and make it better than we ever imagined that it could be. And if we will live like that, repentance and faith, we, when we come to the end of our lives, we will be able to say, it is clear that this person loved and knew his God. Amen? Let's pray.